Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bar at Law podcast. Uh, my name is Sara Kazmi and today I'm being joined by fellow barrister Samir Khosa, who is a founding partner of Access Law Chambers based in Lahore and an advocate of the High Court of Pakistan. And today he's going to be sharing some insight on scaling up and running a successful law firm. Samir completed his LLB from University College London and was called to the bar at Lincoln's Inn. He has an LLM degree from Columbia University, New York, and has also passed the New York State Bar Exam. So Samir, thanks so much for taking the time out. Welcome to the show. You are my first guest who's not from Islamabad, so happy to have you on. How are you doing? Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on here. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm glad I'm representing Lahore finally. So before I get down to actually asking you some questions, just some context for the listeners on what the episode is about. So one of the themes that I covered in the previous episode was about the question that law graduates often ask when starting their career. Do I go for a big name firm or a small firm? Because they want to decide on what's the best learning environment for them. And when they say big firms, they're usually referring to two types, in my opinion, Um, a firm that's prominent because of the success or the experience or the high profile nature of the founding partner, but not necessarily big in terms of, you know, size. And in other instances, in the sense that it's ranked as a top firm and recognized for, you know, serving clients in various industries. So this basically got me thinking that since I graduated, which was a while ago, are there any firms that have accomplished, you know, this recognition that went from like a new firm and were able to scale it up to a big firm. And in Islamabad, I, I have to say that while there are many firms that have have been established and there are many independent lawyers that are doing amazing work and have established like their own niches. But as a firm, I don't see that uh, a firm that's come up even like in the last decade. But in Lahore, and I really hope I'm not offending anybody else, when I think about it, you know, access law chambers comes to mind. And that's why I wanted to have Samir on as the founding partner of a firm that certainly didn't exist a decade ago. But I think now it falls in the same category as some of like the older firms in in Pakistan. So Samir, first of all, I mean, congrats on everything you've achieved. I think that's quite an accomplishment. I don't know if you've had the time to really step back and, and see it for yourself. But do you want to first start with maybe giving an overview of of access law in terms of like the size and like your team and the practice areas and, and the clients that you cater to? Sure. Wow. So I actually haven't had the chance to look at it that way. I think I when I, whenever I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about what what's still to be done, what are we doing, um, where do we go from here, and those are the kind of thoughts that you know generally I'm thinking about. But it's it sounds pretty nice to hear it said that way. Um, so thanks. But you know we're so right now we're a firm of nine partners, and we're about forty two lawyers, uh, whole c- combined. And uh, we have an office in Islamabad. Our headquarters are in Lahore. We have a liaison office in Karachi through which we service our Karachi work. So in that sense, we're a national outfit uh, and we're a big outfit from Pakistani, uh, from a Pakistani law firm size uh, perspective. So that's what we generally, in terms of size and output, that's what it is. 
one of our partners the managing partner is in islamabad about there's eight of us primarily based out of lahore but one of us amna does uh, mostly project uh, financing and projects related work so that's infrastructure projects and project financing and a lot of that work so she has a kind of a niche there then we have a couple of partners who do transactional corporate work and then we have litigation the good old fashioned pakistani domestic litigation and then we also have an arbitration practice so in that sense you know in terms of area of work also we've done a lot of work in different areas and we can handle pretty much all kinds of work so that's us in in a, in a nutshell i think yeah and so let's go back a little bit to when access law started when did it start and how did it start like what's the story of access law chambers well so the first part of that story is you know when we first started everybody said why the name access um and i think that weirdly when we were starting out the law firm we could agree on a lot of the mechanics and the vision fairly quickly but we couldn't agree on a name so it, and the reason that we had the name was also because one part of the reason for choosing a non person name so it could have been a khosa kutub and rahim and you know and then the thought was okay every time we add a partner the conversation is going to be is my name in in the name of the firm am i a named partner or not so we wanted that discussion to just be off the table that the firm is bigger than the individuals who are constituting it and it's bigger than the individuals who are joining it and it should both outlive them and be have an identity of its own and that was the thinking behind giving it an identity that was independent of the names of the partners so but it brought a real problem of what the name should be so we had we went through i think about 70 80 names and we could just never agree on one name and eventually we had a short list of about five or six and the way we broke the tie break was we got our office boy who was going to pick up the phone at the reception and said listen here are these seven names which is the one that you can pronounce most easily okay because you're going to pick up the phone and say hello access law chambers so there's no point in having you know i'm not going to say any other names that are on the list and you know i am for for fear of offending somebody who's chosen that name so but so we went through that list and said okay which is the name that you can choose and so he picked it he said this is the one that i will say most easily so he said okay fine so that's how we got the name but the story is that all of us so the first the four original founding partners myself uh, tariq hasan ali zahid rahim shahab kutub we each had a background in working for one of what you described as a big name firm in the sense of a solo practitioner with a very big name um it was asan uh, minto saab and salman akram raja in my case shahab also salman akram raja so we had that background and having moved away from that background shahab had set up his own little kind of outfit tariq and ali had set up their own little outfit and they had kind of thought okay maybe we should get together and i was thinking of think setting up an outfit so we started talking and we thought okay you know this this pattern is far too repetitive in in this country which is you you go you do two to five years with a senior practitioner then you say okay fine i've learned my trade and then you set up and become a solo practitioner yourself 
And there's lots of good people doing their own work or very similar work, but just not pooling in their talent together. And so the idea was that good people should be able to work together under one roof and grow together. And that's the vision that we kind of aligned ourselves and said, we need to kind of break the pattern in the market. Why is it that, you know, so many markets, even India now, can set up their own big law firms, can set up law firms that outlast their partners 70, 80, you know, years. Um, we don't have those setups in Pakistan. And so we started talking and then Tariq and Ali's farm and Shahab's farm merged into one farm. And when I joined, we set up Axis. So Axis became uh, a farm in its own right, I guess, in 2014. But the partners who were constituting Axis in some form or another uh, were on the journey since 2011. So that's the, that's the path to us becoming four. And then slowly we added partners um, laterally. And I think January 2019 was a big moment for us because we then started promoting partners from within our uh, farm. And I think that's the key for any farm or a big farm. The moment, you know, you can take talent that joins you at a certain degree of, you know, when they're starting out and they can see a path to be, being a partner in that farm. That's when you set up something that's kind of self-sustaining. Um, so, yeah, so that's the that's the story in brief. Yeah, so I think you, you know, you just mentioned how like all the founding partners, except for you, they were already working for or you were as well working for like, you know, somebody else, like a big firm. And I think that for for a lawyer that sort of transitions into that, like you leave that big firm and you're starting your own sort of practice. Um, I, I think that they do struggle with generating clients maybe they don't when they're working for that big firm they see the work coming in but not necessarily like okay how to get work and when they leave and they're starting their own practice or in your case like starting your own law firm um, sometimes they struggle with that did you face that or were you prepared like okay it's not going to be the same thing did you have a plan in place on like okay how to actually get clients on our own now now that we don't have the support or the name of like an existing big firm? Oh, absolutely. I think we're all very ill-equipped to develop uh, our business, the business of law, um, where, where we learn to be lawyers in law school and uh, we learn to be good lawyers in our initial years in practice, but we don't really learn how to develop the business of law, how to generate clients and to generate business and how to how to run and operate uh, an entity. So, and I'll say this, I mean, the best laid plans go to waste. So yes, we had a plan, then we had backup plans and then our plans didn't work and some of our backup plans didn't work. But otherwise, I think that some things fell through from very unexpected sources. So I think you should have a plan um, you need to have some sense of what, where are your relationships and what is the work that you have done, where is your expertise. So you need to have a basic sense of the kind of uh, unique selling proposition that you offer. What are you good at and who are the people that find you convincing and be able to talk to them and develop that network and have a sense of your network also. But then beyond that, a lot of it is kind of reacting to the situation that you find yourself in. So 
yes, we faced, I faced, I'll say for myself, I think it was a big transition for me in terms of learning how to develop clientele and, and bring in new clients and not just prepare a case that has already been handed to me because you never have to worry about that in a, in a big farm that you're working in otherwise. Yeah. So compared to like, you know, 2014 and like now, how do you think that's changed in terms of how you get clients? Is it, is it based on referrals? Is it active relationship building? Is it now you think the name recognition or do you actively advertise or market your firm as well? Well, the answer is all of the above, but I don't think it's one one thing. So there is, I think the most reliable thing that generates more work for you is the work that you've already done. So if you're doing good work for people that are already your clients, then they will refer further work to you. And the network that they are a part of, if they know somebody, they will refer those people to you. So you find that the work that you do generates a lot of the trust and um, initial kind of ability for other people to take a chance on you. So I think the first thing is to do the work that you have to the best of your abilities, because that's what will speak on your behalf. Then I think your network matters because people eventually, you're not really allowed to market yourself. You're not allowed advertising or any of that. So you can't do that. But the people who know you um, will be essentially your mouthpieces. And you want to be able to make sure that that network does advocate on your behalf um, to the extent that is possible. As far as the firm is concerned in terms of marketing, I wouldn't say that we market ourselves a lot in, in the traditional kind of marketing sense of it. But I think you should generate intellectual uh, output so you know we encourage people to write we write ourselves on current issues um, also contribute to various uh, topics of interest so discussions panels and wherever you get the chance you know so all of us have written occasionally we've visited panels and uh, and topics and seminars on that on topics that we're helpful at so I think that's that's really what marketing a law firm, quote unquote, is about. It's essentially making sure that the intellectual output that you have, that you're putting some of it out there uh, for people to review on their own time. And so what has your strategy been in terms of expanding in size? I mean, you you mentioned you're like nine partners and like 40 something associates. Um, so at what point did you decide, okay, we need to expand more? Um, how does that decision take place within your firm? And and why Karachi and Islamabad? Uh, why did you decide to expand into other cities? It's a continuous process. I don't think there's a point at which you say we need to expand now. I think that the most important thing for expansion is that you need to be on the lookout for opportunities and not close your mind to them. So if you set up a two-person firm or a three-person firm, and that's great, and there's lots of benefits sometimes temperamentally, if you're you're temperamentally suited to that, that's great. But most of it is if you think, okay, this is it, then that's it. And then you're a two-person or a three-person firm. But for us, I think the the key to expanding is to not expand for the sake of it, one, but to compl- but to always be on the lookout for opportunities that if you find people who are interested in you, 
have that conversation, see if synergies can develop. And if they can, then be open to taking a shot. I think that's what we've had. We had a partner in Islamabad. It, we Before the current partner in Islamabad that we have, that didn't work out after a while. So they went their own way. So we've also had experiences, you know, and we had some people who were interested in us where conversations went to a fairly advanced degree, but that didn't work out for one reason or another. So on any given occasion, things will or will not work out. But I think it's important for you to be open to the possibility. And then if the timing is right, if the person is right, if the, if the outfit is right, that will work. You'll give it a chance. If it's not, then you'll keep waiting for till the right opportunity comes. But I think the important thing is to not close your close your ambition um, uh, for yourself and to limit yourself to what you are currently. And Islamabad and Karachi is was an easy decision. I think any person who wants to be a national outfit or a big name firm has to not limit themselves to only one city. Islamabad is the federal capital. The Islamabad High Court has been in place since 2010. So you can see that most of the federal government work, well, you know, there's a lot of potential there that will happen. So it makes, it's a no-brainer. Karachi is the commercial capital of the country. So, you know, if Karachi farms can come and set up Lahore offices, why can't Lahore farms go and set up Karachi offices? So it's just, again, it's a matter of not limiting yourself. Yeah. And also when you're, you know, starting your firm, I think the operation side and the logistics and the administrative aspect is just as important how involved were you and what was your experience like in that like when it comes to hiring support staff or figuring out what and where your office space should be what was that experience like oh that's an ongoing experience uh, it has its own challenges um from the first look so i'll answer this question specifically also but the first thing that i want to kind of put your attention to is I think we're one of the first firms or one of the first now others are coming uh, and also following suit to have a recruitment cycle so you know we have a dedicated recruitment cycle for lawyers which starts early in the year there's a two-month application process it goes to most of the law firms uh, to most of the law schools in the city it's advertised on our website. You know, we have an internal two or three rounds of interviews, essentially. And that allowed us to, to, you know, recruit talent early to streamline the way that we want people to join our firm. And that's experience that we've seen, you know, for pupillages, for vacation placements, law firms all over the world do that. But over here, it's a lot less structured. So we wanted to bring some structure into it. And so we've done that setting, you know, setting those kind of processes up is not easy. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of buy-in and it takes a lot of resources. So I think it helped. So we've, I've been involved quite heavily in the logistics of it and the logistics of it really are in the, the nature of the beast keeps changing. We were, when we were four person farm, we had a rented house uh, converted into a law firm at that point in time. That was different. Then we had to, we decided we wanted to move into a purpose-built office. So making that office that we have currently, which is a commercial building, two floors in that, that is a whole uh, different logistical challenge, the construction aspect of it. While you're doing your law firm business on the side and your logistics and office boys on the side, then when we're expanding to Islamabad, searching for offices in Islamabad, uh, figuring out how, you know, the Islamabad and Lahore office will coordinate with each other. 
then again karachi is a different altogether uh, logistical challenge and with covid and then well, on ongoing basis with the mate, pandemic maintenance covid covid became a huge uh, uh, you know thing that we had to contend with so and i think thankfully we technologically prepared enough to do that to have the technological infrastructure to kind of scan your files have remote access but then cybersecurity all of those things so it become all of these things become you know there's a, there's always a, a some new story that has nothing to do with the law aspect of it so i often joke i said i did a law degree and i needed a like a business management degree yeah i know i agree with that now another thing i want to talk about which is important for all of us is pricing your legal services and figuring out especially when you're starting out how do you charge clients um what's your strategy like for that and one of the reasons i'm asking is because my friends and my colleagues constantly say this to me sara you've got to start charging more and they're not saying it like for my sake it's like their point of view is if you're charging less than what you should be it affects the market rate of services and it affects all of our business and i'm like how is one person affecting you know your business but i want to take you know your your view on this do you look at what other people are charging whether lawyers are charging in the city is that a factor for you um what's your take on this so i won't name the person involved but once you know one of uh, one of the retired judges of the court uh, in the high court was having a conversation about you know law firms generally and they said to me that you know when we were about to retire this very well known tax practitioner in lahore had a conversation with him and said listen we're very happy that you know you're going to be uh, coming back into practice but when when a new client comes to you please consult me for the fees you should charge them because i don't want you to spoil the market for the rest of us <laughs> so so i think that it's a real thing when your friends tell you I think it's a real thing that people do uh, worry that if you're undercutting that there is a mark there is a market but actually I tend to think that we're in a very challenging market because I don't think that especially for for us you know one of the challenges for example of setting up a big law firm is that you are providing infrastructure and the level of hr support and in terms of the numbers of lawyers that are staffed on it that can often equate to that is higher than others in the market but the market has a certain ability to pay so clients you know individual clients will have a certain ability to pay and they will not be able to go beyond that so if you know we wanted to and we want to provide premium legal services that are competitive with anywhere else in the world but we're not in a market that will pay us that amount of uh, you know in dollars and pounds the amount of ability that you can uh, earn elsewhere and you know even something as simple as charging an hourly rate is not the norm here um for especially for domestic litigation you know so i think pricing is is always challenging and to a certain degree i think you look at what others are charging not from a competitive aspect but from an aspect of the fact that you should be able to you should be valuing yourself and the services and the time you provide appropriately 
And if you're not doing that, you're not being fair to yourself. And I think it's important to be fair uh, to yourself in that regard. So for that reason, I think it's important to have a sense of the value of the services that you're providing generally. But beyond that, I think that it's important that you price for services uh, appropriately, given the complexity of the matter that's involved. So one of the things that we did earlier, and then we stopped doing it, is we had a rate chart because we were all new to the market. And we couldn't have figured this out all the time. We didn't have the experience. So we developed an internal rate chart where we sat down and said, here's a list of 70 things that lawyers do. And this is going to be our go-to for that. Um, that helped us a lot in the first two years that we did it, because at least it gave us a benchmark that we could operate from. And uh, then, you know, when you develop a certain level of experience in the market and a certain level of clientele, then you get a feel for these things and you have a sense of them. Um, and I think so now it's, uh, I guess it's slightly easier, although sometimes I still get told uh, what you get told by your friends. Okay. So I think, I guess we all need to work on that. Yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, I, I don't really like hourly billing. Um, I, you know, I just feel, I mean, that's the only time I give that as an option to a client is if I feel like the, the nature of the individual tasks is not very time consuming. Because when I used to work in-house for, for a company, they were constantly in dispute with their external lawyers about they would feel like the lawyers billing excessively. And when I started um, practicing independently, I'm only talking about the energy sector. So th the clients that I had were companies that didn't have an in-house legal department. So they only relied on external lawyers. So when I would ask them, like, okay, did you have lawyers before? So they would basically complain that the reason why we terminated our previous uh, legal representation was because the lawyer was charging by the hour, but billing excessively, either, you know, um, like wrongly quoting hours or unnecessarily complicating work that just to add to the hours. So... I mean, I feel like there's a lot of mistrust that sometimes happens. So I, I, I honestly don't like the hourly um, fee structure that we have. I don't know what your experience has been like in Lahore, but in Isamba, that's like a huge problem. Like clients feel like lawyers bill excessively when it comes to hours. Yeah, so this is an excellent example, right? Hourly billing for lawyers is the norm all over the world. But... For us and in, you know, over here, there is a lot of distrust associated with it because of this sense of we can't know you're going to charge extra hours. Uh, you're going to say, oh, this uh, and you're going to unnecessarily you have an incentive to use more hours. Right. Yeah. So hourly billing is very closely related to being accountable and transparent with your hours. So whenever we bill by the hour. We have. Uh, um an internal and an external. So with our bill, you know, would go a whole breakdown of day by day, date by date, task by task, what we did. And so I think hourly billing really requires you to be very, very uh, transparent and accountable for the hours that you actually spend. Yeah. Thankfully, so far, um, in we've not had many people complain about the, the billing when we've billed hourly. 
And the reason that I would prefer, the kind of cases that I would prefer an hourly billing model in is not really a domestic litigation because there's so much that's out of your control. So for example, adjournment, if there's an adjournment, if there's a date, um, you know, you're going to a hearing, that's very difficult for you to kind of control. But there are some assignments where the assignment is very open-ended. Like if somebody says, listen, we're in the potential, uh, we're exploring a potential settlement with one of our long-standing dispute or what, and that will involve negotiations, it will involve drafting an agreement, it will involve potential rounds of, you know, going back and forth on the agreement, maybe further negotiations, and then implementation of whatever is agreed. That's such an open-ended task. Yeah. And how can you estimate how long it will take you and uh, and then give a lump sum figure for it. So in those situations, I think that it really makes sense from a law firm perspective to be able to say, listen, we'll charge for whatever you use us for, not more and not less. And that's where it comes in. But we're not stuck to it. So we would offer all three kinds of mechanisms. We'll say, look, this is a lump sum where we can offer a lump sum. Um, this is the hourly model. And this is or an estimate based on the hours that we uh, think will be spent on it. Um, so we'll scope it out. And then if it goes beyond that, then we'll charge further. So I think it's important to have be forthright and transparent. But you're absolutely right. The, the reason that people don't prefer hourly billing here is because of a distrust associated with, uh, with the mechanisms and how, how transparent law firms are being with the hourly billing. Yeah. Uh, just Samir, just some last questions on like tips and suggestions for the audience. Uh, firstly, you know, does your firm uh, use any technology tools, uh, you know, to facilitate with client management or just firm management? I think you mentioned a little bit, you know, because of the pandemic, but, um, you know, what tech tools do you use and what suggestions um, do you have for uh, for other lawyers on how to potentially market themselves or their firm? So I'm a huge advocate for using technology in law firms. Uh, it's one of my pet uh, kind of projects. I think I'm I'm known as a, too annoying on the subject in my own firm. Um, but yes, what we do use, I think, is for basically for which is. I, standard is uh, the G Suite, which is now Google Workspaces uh, for your basic um, online st drive storage, uh, collaboration, and emails. And I think most of us would use that for emails. But if you explore Google Workspaces, it's a, it's a very, very powerful set of services for matching calendars, organizing your teams, um, even shared drive. So being able to staff multiple people on same cases, scanning and uploading documents and resource sharing. So that's one that's highly recommended. And the equivalent, if you are Microsoft, is Microsoft's Exchange, essentially. But both of them are very similar. We use, we use the Google uh, workspaces that's provided for us. The second is uh, Slack, which is internal uh, firm, uh, which we use for internal firm messaging and general collaboration. So I'm not sure if many people are familiar with it, but Slack is known essentially as the email killer. So where you have lots and lots of threads where people are you know, discussing a particular case or output or draft, and you're going back and forth over like 35 emails with one line here and one line there, Slack. In Slack, it operates as a WhatsApp group. You're like one group 
which you make in different channels of discussion. So you can make different channels based on what you're working on. And is that, re- is that like an app? It's an app. So it's on a desktop. It's on your phone. Uh, it's an app that you can use. And lots of very, uh, lots of big companies now use it the world over. Um, so we use that for our internal kind of firm announcements, messaging, and then often organizing. And within, like, if you're if you're three people on a team, kind of communicating on that uh, platform. It's instead of using WhatsApp. So I think if you're using WhatsApp both for work and for your personal life, there's a lot of WhatsApping going on. So it creates that neat separation for us, uh, where Slack is for work. And um, then we use this out. Um, website called toggle for time tracking um and i think that's the most convenient time tracking software that we use and we don't internally this is just uh, it's not that it's not for internal accountability it's just for general senses of um what how much time has been taken on to doing something but primarily it's for exactly when we're billing by the hour we make sure that we also use slack in real uh, toggle in real time so if we ever need to justify what we've done, um, we have a, a record of the time spent on a particular matter using that. So those are two or three that's really important tips. I think that the most important and effective way of generating work and marketing yourself as a lawyer is to trust your deck and to put it out there. So I think you should write as often as you can. Um, you should write in magazines, in journals, in newspapers, op-eds. And then you should participate in seminars and panels uh, wherever you can. And often one leads to the other. So if, as long as you're kind of intellectually generating output, then you know somebody or the other will say, okay, you know what you're talking about here. And they'll look you up. And, you know, honestly, this is a piece of advice that I read somewhere. You could do a couple of networking lunches and that's very important also, but that's makes an impact on one person. And I've had so many times that something or the other I've written, maybe even sometimes 10 years ago. And there's a person who's Googling on that topic and they realize, okay, you know, this person knows what he's writing about here and they've written two or three things and they'll write to you. They'll say, oh, listen, this is a question. And since you've written about this, I know that you know what you're talking about here. Can you help me? Um, and that's not just for me. There are other people, my partners, you know, and people outside of international law firms have reached out to us and said, listen, we want advice on this topic because you wrote X, Y, and Z on it. We came across that. So I think if you can write stuff, put it out there, um, that's uh, really a very good uh, way of increasing both your visibility and your ability to generate work. Yeah, I think those are great tips, Samir. Um, also, anything that you wish you knew early on uh, when you started that you think that young lawyers who are thinking about doing the same, like starting their own firm, that they should know? Mm. No lessons learned? I think, um, uh, no, no, lots of lessons learned. I can't figure out which one <laughs> to, to give. But I think be uh, be open to knowing that you know being a lawyer is not is a lot more about than just um, reading a brief or reading a judgment, putting it out uh, putting it out there. So be open about the fact that you will need to do a lot of different kinds of work. 
um, in order to be a lawyer, especially an independent lawyer, whether you're setting up a solo practice, whether you're working as towards a partner in a law firm, or whether you're setting up your own law firm, uh, be aware of the fact that it's not just about going to court, coming home, reading a coming to the office, reading a file, and reading judgments. You're 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 setting up an entity. Uh, and it just so happens that what you do, what you produce is intellectual output of, of the legal services that you do. Um, so that's one. And the second thing is always remember that you're in a business that provides services. So how efficiently and how approachable and how well you interact with people is what will get you uh, more business. So I think getting yourself out of the mindset of this is not my work and recognizing that this is what I do and this is all part of what my work is, is important because otherwise there's a lot of heartache and like lots of angst about why am I doing this? Why am I having to do this? What is this all about? And the sooner you can realize and own that as part of the process, I think the sooner you will do better at it. And how do you measure success of your firm? Like what is it um, that makes you think, okay, this is working? We're, we're doing well, we're running a successful firm. What does success mean to you? Look, for me personally, I think that you're in the business of solving problems. People come to you when they're the problems. So it's not, as long if you're doing that well, and people think that you're able to solve those problems, A, well, B, with integrity, uh, that's the fundamental, uh, at the core of it, that's what you do. So if you're doing that well, I think that's important. That's success. And in terms of an outfit, I think the goal had always been that access should be greater than the sum of its parts, which is what we are. So if it, so if I'm retired someday, uh, someday, and the firm is going on, then I will think that, okay, you set up something that sustained itself, that has a life and energy of its own. Um, and I think that's a creative kind of outlet uh, that would be success in terms of setting this up uh, just on a parting note Samir um, how can people connect with you learn more about you or your firm what's the best way to reach out to you so one is our website accessflow.pk which is a-x-i-s-l-a-w.pk and you can reach out to us there uh, if you're looking for HR like HR opportunities, then it's careers at accesslaw.pk. Otherwise, it's info at accesslaw.pk. And if you want to reach out to me specifically, then it's very simple. It's Samir, S-A-M-E-E-R dot K-H-O-S-A at accesslaw.pk. I think that's the easiest way to reach out to us. Otherwise, we're on Twitter as well. Okay, great. Uh, well, thanks a lot to me for taking the time out. It was good to catch up with you in, in detail. I don't think I've really talked to you about, you know, about your work and in so much detail. So yeah, thanks for taking the time out. Hope to see you soon. And yes, uh, I will see you soon. Thank you for having me. I think I haven't spoken about my work in this way also. I've just been busy doing it otherwise. Uh, so it's, it's good to take stock every now and then. But thank you so much for having me here. I'm glad that, you know, we got this chance. And thank you to everyone else for tuning in. Please do subscribe to the Bard Law Podcast. If you have any comments or feedback for me, the email is in the description. And also please share this with fellow lawyers and law students in your network.